If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We continue this morning in our series in the Gospel of John. We're going to read this morning verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1 and then jump down to verses 14 through 18. The focus of the message this morning will come out of those latter verses, verses 14 through 18. Please follow along as I read beginning in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then please jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. An argument can be made that John 1 and verse 14 is the most consequential verse in all the Bible. Moreover, an argument can be made that there is no verse in the Bible that is more highly concentrated with truth than John 1 verse 14. Furthermore, an argument might be made that the greatest summation of Christianity and indeed the greatest summation of the gospel itself is found in John 1 and verse 14. And I wouldn't know exactly how to assess all of those arguments. But I think it can be said that the climax of biblical revelation is found in this verse and specifically in those words, the word became... the word became flesh. And so the question arises for us, what approach can we take to the exposition of this text that can come close to capturing something of the beauty and the glory and the significance of this text? How can we possibly hope in 45 minutes to do any justice to this text? And after hours and hours of study this week, I've discovered that you cannot. Uh, We're talking about incarnation of the Son of God. And we should be aware that we, like Moses, who is mentioned in verse 17, in this passage, indeed in every passage, stand on holy ground. Because of that, I'd like to ask that we pray before opening up these verses. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word is now open before us. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You would come and open up the Bible to us and press its truths upon our hearts and upon our consciences. And may we know something of that glory that John the Apostle witnessed in the Son as from the Father. We pray as always, what we have not you would give us, what we know not you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to open up these verses this morning under three main headings. I'll just give them to you now, probably won't make much reference to them uh, throughout the message, but here they are uh, for you now. First of all, we'll consider uh, the first heading, the word became flesh. We'll be largely in verse 14 under that heading. Secondly, the word was full of grace and truth. That's the very last phrase of verse 14 we'll consider. And into verses 15, 16, and 17. And then the final heading, the word revealed the Father. 
verse 18. So the word became flesh, the word was full of grace and truth, and the word revealed the Father. First of all, consider with me these words, the word became flesh. Looking again at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Let's go through verse 14, taking each phrase in turn and seek to open them up together. First of all, we have these words, the word became flesh. Now in verse 14, we finally return to what was the main subject of this prologue, uh, found in verse 1. Verse 14 is is the the first reference to that word logos, translated the word, uh, since it was used in Verse 1. Well, what did we learn back in verse 1 about that word, the logos, the word? Uh, We observe together that it's best understood as the self-revelation of God, the self-expression of God. We consider the Old Testament background to that phrase, that the word was God's agent, uh, both in creation, in revelation, and in salvation. And then we looked at the verse itself and deduced several truths about the word, three in particular, that framed our thinking about uh, this word made flesh. Uh, We saw that first of all, uh, the word was in the beginning. He was preexistent. He was there before the world began. And indeed, uh, is seen in these verses as the creator of everything that was made. Secondly, verse one tells us the word was with God. Literally, he was God's fellow. He was God's colleague. He was distinct from God, but with him in some sense and then Thirdly, we considered that phrase, the word was God. Though he was distinct from God, that is a distinct person from God, God's fellow, he himself was nonetheless God. He partook of the divine nature. Now here in verse 14, we're given more information about the word. We're told, first of all, uh, unequivocally, that the word is acknowledged to be the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. You see it there in verse 14. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So the Son is the Word. The Word is the Son, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. I think it's interesting, maybe you'll find it interesting, that up to this point, uh, in the introduction to John's Gospel, he's not chosen to introduce Jesus to us as the Messiah or as the Christ. He first introduces him to us as the word, and then the life, and then the light, and now in verse 14 as the son, and indeed by the end of the prologue, he will introduce him as, of course, the Christ, the Messiah who was uh, to come. So John returns to his use of the term logos here in this text, and what new information are we given about the word? Well, we're given the big revelation, and that is that the word became flesh. The preexistent Son of God who dwelled in eternity past, who was with God, God's fellow, and indeed was God, he became a man. He became human. And this gets at the very heart of the Christian faith. God becomes man. God himself took on humanity. This is nothing short than the historic doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God. And it is this doctrine, perhaps more than any other, that sets Christianity apart from all the other religions of the world. The Word was made flesh. God became man. I appreciate what D.A. Carson has said on this text. The Word, God's very self-expression, who was both with God and who was God, became flesh. He donned our humanity, save only our sin. God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a real historical man. When the Word became flesh, God Himself became man. This is the doctrine that distinguishes Christianity more than any other from the other religions of the world, from Judaism and from Islam and from Buddhism. In no other religion is God said to actually take on human nature. Moreover, it's this doctrine, perhaps more than any other or as much as any other, that distinguishes historic Christian orthodoxy from heresy, that is false teaching or false truth. Now it's at this point we need to take stock of the great theological freight contained in verse 14. Tremendously important point, and we can't miss this here, and that is this. The Son of God, as he becomes human, 
does not cease to be God. The Son of God, as he becomes human, does not cease to be God. The Logos became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. And there are actually, this is taught a number of places in the New Testament, but there are actually two factors in the verse itself in verse 14 that would cause us, I think, to conclude this. Uh, First of all, we read that it was the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The subject of the sentence is the Word. That is the Word who is with God and was God. Who is it that dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ? It was the Word. He became man, yes, but it's still the Word who's dwelling among us and going from place to place and interacting with people. God continues in his divine nature, even as taking on a human nature. But the second reason within the text itself is that John tells us we have seen what? His glory. And glory as of the only Son revealed from the Father. When people beheld the glory of the person Jesus Christ, it wasn't the glory of a man. It was the glory of the only Son sent from the Father. So we see that God, even while becoming a man, is still totally and fully God and totally and fully man at the same time. We just sung about this a moment ago. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, right? He's God and man at the same time. He truly became flesh. And we need to embrace that statement for all that it entails, not just that God became a man, but that he he did actually inhabit a human body. He took on flesh. He indeed became flesh. The Word who was with God in the beginning, who was God, actually took on human flesh. And so he came to know what it was like to sweat and to bleed. He came to know what it felt like to be tired and to be exhausted. He knew what it was like to to feel cold at night and to reach for a blanket. He knew what it was like to taste honey and discern that it was sweet and taste salt and discern that it was bitter. He knew what it was like to cry. He knew what it was like to laugh, perhaps uncontrollably, the impulse just coming on him in his human flesh to laugh or to cry. Moreover, he knew what it was like to experience temptation. He knew what it was like to experience, I think we can say this, common human anxieties and pressures. Not the kind of anxieties that are categorized as sin, but those sorts of common human anxieties and pressures, and some even uncommon, uh, so uncommon that it caused the Lord Jesus to sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what it was like to experience physical harm and physical danger. He knew what it was like to feel discouraged and to feel downcast. And he keenly understood the feeling of abandonment and betrayal. The Word became flesh. And we need to embrace all the implications of that. You can, in truth, say, God became like me. He never sinned, but he took on flesh like mine. And these experiences that are common to humanity, God experienced them in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. Remember, friends, we worship a God who has walked our roads. He's felt our pain. He's borne our burdens. No one can say, well, well, God doesn't know what it's like to be me. He sent his son precisely so that he would know exactly what it's like to be you. The author to Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, knows what it's like to be you. He knows us completely and thoroughly. He has entered into humanity, and he has experienced the things we experience save only the action of sin. Now, just as an aside here for a moment, a lot of people will press Christians, and not just Christians, people embracing any religion, but people will press Christians often on um, what's called the problem of evil. There's a good God, created all things, who's in some sense sovereign. How come there's so much evil and pain and suffering in the world? Well, Christians should not give pat answers to that kind of a question. In fact, there is some mystery there that we have to acknowledge. The Bible does give answers. They're seldom satisfactory to the world, but, but we shouldn't give pat answers. Well, I just want to observe at this point, the complexion of that discussion 
changes when you can establish the point that God himself entered this realm of suffering and sin and wickedness. God is not distant, just sort of observing everything, all the pain and suffering in the world. He himself undertook to acquaint himself in a human person the suffering and the evil and the wickedness that is in the world. Well, that doesn't solve the issue, but it certainly changes the complexion of the discussion. God is not distant from our suffering. God is not distant from the experience of sin in the world. In fact, he sent his son into the world that he might experience those same effects. Well, John goes on to say more, still under the first heading here, the word made flesh. The next phrase is, he became flesh and dwelt among us. The word translated dwelt among us literally means pitched his tabernacle among us or, or pitched his tent or lived in his tent among us. The word made flesh, we could say, tabernacled with us. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, I believe it's back in Exodus 25, there's the uh, uh, presentation of the idea of the tabernacle, later on the tent of meeting, and later on even the temple, this place where God's presence and his glory was uniquely manifest for the people of Israel. Well, what's amazing about John 1, verse 14, is Jesus is now identified with the presence of God. Where's God's presence? Where's his tabernacle? Where does, where does he live? Well, John 1, verse 14 tells us in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us, brought the presence and the glory of God to bear in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the next phrase, John says, and we have seen him. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. It's not just that he became flesh and became incarnate. John wants to emphasize, to state that we were witnesses to this. John understands himself to be a member of the community of witnesses who actually witnessed the coming of God into the world in human flesh. We saw this. Our eyes beheld this. Now we believe that John's gospel perhaps was written around 50 years after uh, the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. That was probably in the early 30s. John's gospel written perhaps in the early 80s. So two generations later, but John wants to tell his audience, I was there. I'm one of those witnesses who actually, actually beheld his flesh. We saw his glory. Now we just pass over that phrase and maybe it doesn't impact us the way it should, but John and the other apostles make very much, they want to emphasize again and again the significance of their witness to the events of the incarnation. So John writing even later than his gospel in an epistle that's known to us as 1 John, striking the similarity of language in the opening verses of 1 John and in John 1. Let me just read the first few verses and you can discern how important it is to John to establish that he was a witness to these things. 1 John 1 verses one through three. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We touched him, our eyes saw him, we heard him, we were there. And why is it so important for John to establish that he was a witness to these things? Well, he tells us so that people like us, through reading his witness, can also enter into fellowship with God and fellowship with the apostolic witnesses. John is in effect saying, come with me. I want you to see what I've seen. I want you to hear with the ears of faith. I want you to see with the eyes of faith. I want you too to reach out your hands and touch him with the hands of faith that you too may enter into fellowship with God. Well, now we get to one of the final phrases of the verse. What is it that John saw? Since the word became flesh, dwelt among us, we have seen what? We saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And we could ask, wherein consisted this glory? What is it that John and the other disciples, what is it that they actually 
saw. Well, we should not think that that they saw some sort of halo-like luminescence that followed Jesus' person around everywhere he went, just shining from his face. We don't get any indication of that at all. I think the glory that John is talking about here, this is what he and the other apostles saw, was a spiritual quality of beauty and majesty seen in Jesus' words and works as he carried on his earthly ministry. And John indeed draws our attention to this kind of glory again and again throughout the Gospel of John. So John 2.11, for example, after Jesus turns water into wine, we read, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In John 11, verse 40, Jesus told Martha that if she believed in him, she would see the glory of God. And then later on, the focus of glory is attached directly to the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. In John 17, before Jesus goes to the cross and he prays his high priestly prayer, in verse five he says this, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Back to our text, John says, we have seen this glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now it might enter your mind, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, that Many people saw Jesus, and many people heard his teaching, and many people saw the signs that he did. In fact, lots of people saw the resurrection of Lazarus, and yet it's interpreted in different ways by different people. And you might be thinking, if somewhat cynical, well, some glory. I mean, he does these things and people don't even believe in him. It must not have been that magnificent. But there's a reason for that. And that is because this type of glory can only be discerned through the gift of faith. It is a spiritual discerning of the glory of God in the words and works of Jesus Christ. The glory consists not in his physical form, and it did not consist in bare physical manifestations of power. Rather, it is a spiritual and moral beauty that shines in and through his words and deeds. And that beauty can only be discerned through those who are given the gift of faith. It was true then and it's still true today. Why do some people hear sermons preached? Imagine two hypothetical people. And, and one is wonderfully converted. And the other thinks it's just a bunch of hubbub that has no bearing on their life. What's the difference? What causes the difference? What well, is that in the one, he or she was enabled to see this spiritual dimension of glory and beauty and majesty in the things being taught. We often pray in the preaching of the word of God that Jesus would be lifted up and would be seen and that his glory would be revealed before lost sinners. And we pray that God, through faith, would make that happen, that he would give the gift of faith to those who hear the word of God. And so you're praying for lost friends. What is it you need to pray for them? Lord, help them to see. Give them the eyes of faith that they might see the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his words and works. And as the word of God is opened up, would you reveal that glory to them? Because we recognize all men are spiritually blind. They don't naturally see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs to be given them through faith. But regardless of whether or not people perceive his glory, Hebrews 1.3 is true. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So that's the first heading, the first big truth conveyed in this text, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Now secondly, that last phrase in verse 14, the word was full of grace and truth. Let's read verse 14 on down through verse 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And I believe verse 16 is connected to verse 14. Verse 15 is just a, a footnote really. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word, we're told, 
the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was full of grace and truth. This is a glorious statement. The Lord Jesus, the Word who was God, who became flesh, was full of grace and truth. That statement there at the end of verse 14, I think, should smack us with wonder. Why? Because it might have been otherwise. Might have been otherwise. We could have read, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of judgment and wrath. He might have come for execution. He might have come for condemnation. Jesus might have said, I've come in the fullness of time. I have borne long enough with the world that is the created order and active rebellion against God, and I'm done. I'm coming in the flesh, and I'm going to execute judgment. I'm going to come with a sword. He might have come full of judgment and wrath, but he doesn't. He comes full of grace and truth. What's my Jesus filled up with? Not condemnation, not wrath, grace and truth. He tells us that in John 3, verse 17. God says, I have not sent my son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Spectacular when you consider it might have been otherwise. He might have come full of judgment and wrath. He might have come for condemnation, but he didn't come for that purpose. He came full of grace and truth. Listen. The truth that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, that is not good news yet. Because if he comes full of judgment and wrath, we're all damned. But if he comes full of grace and truth, full of grace, well then that's the best news we could hear. You mean that he's come. My creator God has come and he's not angry. He's come full of grace. He's come full of mercy and compassion and healing. You mean he's not going to break the bruised reed? He's not going to quench the smoldering wick? You're saying his yoke is easy and his burden is light, that he's lowly in spirit? He's he's the shepherd that leaves the 99 and tenderly, sweetly pursues the lost sheep. He's the father on the front porch who is eagerly looking out for the prodigal son to return that he might run in mercy and compassion and grace and receive him and clothe him in righteous robes. He came to us full of grace and truth. That's hope for the world. That God has come not for judgment, not for wrath. There will be a day for that. But when he came the first time, when he became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he came full of grace and full of truth. Now notice it's grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace is going to be the point of emphasis today and over the next few verses here in the prologue. Oddly enough, it's never mentioned again in the rest of the gospel, the word grace. Truth or true, some form of that word is used some 50 or so times in the rest of the gospel. But the focus becomes grace. Well, I'll just say at this point in the text, this is grace not like we might talk about southern grace or southern charm. It's not cheap grace. It's not a vain hope or a vain wish. It's grace based in truth. It's not like God's denying himself to take a gracious posture. Let me ignore the truth about you for a second and be gracious toward you. No, he comes full of grace and truth. Now, I'm not going to expound verse 15. I believe that it really is an explanatory footnote to what went before in the, uh, uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. If you want to know more about John's ministry, I refer you to the text uh, last week. But I do want to focus on verses 16 and 17, which I think explain to us the implications of the truth that Christ came full of grace and truth. They're incredibly important and understanding that phrase, that he was full of grace and truth. Moreover, they're important for our understanding of what's called redemptive history. That is how God has acted uh, redemptively in historical events to bring about the redemption of his people. So let's look carefully at verses 16 and 17 now to the implications that Christ was full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. Now what do we have here in these verses? We have to start with verse 16. It says, from his fullness, referring back to verse 14, that is from his person, which verse 14 told us is full of grace and truth. From that fullness, we have all received, and I wonder what your translation says. Grace upon grace? Grace after grace? Grace for grace? I think the NIV has it, grace in the place of grace already given. Lots of different translations of this phrase at the end of verse 16, grace upon grace. I think the most common English rendering is grace upon grace. From his fullness, that is the person who is full of grace and truth, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's what the ESV has, the translation that I preach from. And if it were grace upon grace, if that were the appropriate understanding of this text, the idea would be the accumulation of grace, like we're just piling up grace. Grace was, uh, Jesus was so full of grace, he was, he was bubbling over with grace, and from his fullness, we just get wave after wave of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ through our connection with him. He's so filled up with it that we just get grace upon grace from him. Well, that rendering grace upon grace is probably incorrect. It's not grace upon grace, like we're just piling up or accumulating more and more graces from Christ, even though we do accumulate more and more graces from Christ as life goes on. We sing morning by morning, new mercies I see, right? Okay, it's not the idea in this text, though. In other places, it, it might be. The word translated upon, grace upon grace, uh, should not be translated upon. It should be translated differently. Let me just say at this point, I'm very aware that this week and the last two weeks, uh, I've drawn more attention to the Greek behind our English translations than I normally do. I normally don't like doing that, but uh, John 1, 1 through 18 is notably hard to translate. And so I hope I have your patience on that. More than that, though, I hope you don't grow weary of probing more carefully into the details of these verses. The more we understand what the language in John's gospel means, the closer we get to the heart of Christ and the revealed word of God. And so let's not grow weary in probing into these details because we're Bible people. And we want to know what God has said in his word. All right, so back to verse 16, that final phrase there. The more accurate translation is probably more like what the NIV has. Uh, The literal reading would be grace instead of grace, which is admittedly a very awkward phrase, but I think the NIV has it right. It's grace in the place of grace already given. What do we get when Christ came into the world? We get grace in the place of grace that was previously revealed or previously given to us. For the law was given through Moses. Grace. Grace and truth, a different grace, came through Jesus Christ. See, the first use of the word grace in verse 16, the very end of the verse, is a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. We've received grace and then The second use of the word grace is a reference to the law of Moses. So we've received the grace that comes through Jesus Christ in the place of grace that came through the law of Moses. Grace in the place of grace already given. So having clarified the translation, now we can draw a few points from these verses. First of all, we need to see that the law given through Moses was an expression of the grace of God. The law given through Moses was an expression of the grace of God. And that sort of hits us as weird or awkward. The law-grace dichotomy is so ingrained in us that we almost have no category for law coming to us as grace. We don't think of law in those terms. Well, there's a very important distinction I should make at this point. We should recognize that the word law, okay, in the scriptures, is used in many different ways in Greek and Hebrew. It's used in many different ways in English. For example, I could refer to breaking the law. If I speed, I break the law. That is breaking the penal code, okay? I could speak of the laws of nature, which aren't really written down anywhere. They just sort of are principles governing the universe. The law of gravity, for example, which is a different type of law than penal law. I could speak of the laws of logic, which are not visible or observable or empirically verifiable. 
the, the, the laws of thought, laws of rationality. I could even personify the law. If I said, the law is coming for you. It means the authorities are coming for you. Those who represent the law are coming for you. Well, it's no different in Greek and Hebrew. That word is used in a number of different ways throughout the Bible. Okay, I just want to distinguish between two major uses of that word law that we might better understand verse 17, okay? One of the main references, there's several, but these are two big ones. One of the main references to the law of God is a reference to his moral law. That is, an unchanging expression of the righteous and holy character of God. And it is the standard by which God's people are to live. There is the law of God. That is a revelation of his character, an expression of his righteous and holy character that is the standard by which God's people are to live. This law is unchanging. It's never abrogated, not even by Jesus. Rather, he himself is the full embodiment of the law and teaches that law to his disciples. This is the type of law that David exalts over, say in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. He says, of, of the statutes, the commandments, the laws, the rules of God, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there's great reward. This law is a good thing. It's a reflection of the character of God. God who said, be holy as I am holy. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing, and in no way is nullified by the ministry of Jesus. Okay, now there's a second way the word law is used. And it's used in reference to what's called the law of Moses which is a kind of shorthand for the unique and temporary covenant that God made with the people of Israel through the mediation of his servant Moses. When we refer to the old covenant, this is what we're referring to. This law comes to an end in Christ. It becomes obsolete. So usually if a New Testament writer is speaking of the obsolescence or the inferiority of the law or the failure of the law to save, he's normally referring to the law of Moses, namely the old covenant, the law given through Moses. Just as an aside, leaving this sermon for a second, I think this is really important for our understanding of the Bible, to appreciate that the word law is used in different ways. And we should undertake, we should labor whenever we see that word law to ask ourselves, okay, what way does this author, this writer, uh, mean by the usage of the word law in this text? It has profound implications. And I could illustrate that with a simple question. Christians here, are you under the law? Depends on what you mean by that. If what you mean by that is, are you under the law of God? That is his moral requirements. That is an expression of his unchanging holy character. Yes, we are definitely under the law. But if what you mean by that question is, Am I under the old covenant law given through Moses? That is those particular temporary prescriptions that were given through the mediation of Moses regarding civil life and uh, the life of the worship of the old covenant people of Israel. The answer is no. That type of law nullified. It is made obsolete in the coming of Jesus Christ. And you might ask, well, how do we know? In which case, how the word law is being used? Almost always the context will be your guide. Anyway. Returning to the text, how is the word law being used here in John 1.17? Well, in this text, it's transparently obvious that he's referring to the law given through Moses, which of course is no longer in effect. And yet, even though the law of Moses is no longer in effect, it is still referred to as grace. Grace came through the law of Moses, which means even the law, as it was given through Moses, was an expression of the gracious character of God. It was a display of grace. You see, the old covenant, that is the law of Moses, was filled with wonderful provisions for the people of God. If sin was committed, there was the provision of atonement. Moreover, the law brought civil and social order to the nation of Israel, which was a grace from God. It also brought clarity to the worship of God's people, the Israelites. So even though this grace would one day pass away, it was grace nonetheless. But this leads to the second truth we should see in these verses, and that is this. The grace given through the law of Moses 
was displaced by the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. That grace given in the Mosaic administration, that was eventually displaced by the grace that came through Jesus Christ. Sure, the old covenant was an expression of God's grace, but see, all of it was anticipatory. It was, it was looking ahead to what was to come. The law of Moses was never meant to be final revelation from God, and listen, the Israelites knew that. They were looking ahead to some fuller revelation of God through the Messiah, through the Christ who was to come. So they were waiting and looking for something more, ever thankful for the grace of God in the present, but always expecting a fuller manifestation of that grace that would make the present grace obsolete. And now in Christ, in the person of the Word made flesh, fullness of grace has come. All the types and shadows have their fulfillment in Jesus, and that former grace, the law of Moses, is now displaced by the new expression of grace. And that's what's meant by that phrase, translated grace upon grace. It ought to be grace in the place of grace previously given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I have a greater grace, a fuller grace, a newer grace in the person of Jesus Christ than I ever had in the law of Moses. I could illustrate this in a couple of ways. You think of faith and sight now right, in the present. What is faith? It's a gift from God. It's a wonderful grace from him, right? We pray for more faith. We pray that God would enlarge our faith. We pray that God would give faith to those who don't have it. It's a wonderful grace from God. It's a gift from God, right? But when we stand in the presence of Christ with resurrected bodies and resurrected eyes, we will see his glory face to face, and we'll throw out faith like a bad pair of sunglasses, does that mean that in the present it's not a wonderful grace and gift from God? No, of course. But when we see Jesus face to face with our eyes, there's no more need for faith. And we will have grace given in the place of a grace previously given. You might think of a more mundane example. If I um, am away on a long uh, trip and my wife writes me a love letter, I receive that love letter, I pour over that love letter, maybe I smell that love letter, okay? I just, I just love it. This is an expression of my wife's love for me and it's precious to me and I have it and I hold it and I think of her and it calls to mind all the things that I love about her. Now, if I get home from that trip and I walk up to the door and my wife meets me at the door and she's ready to embrace me, but I don't even look up, I'm just looking at that letter and I say, honey, hang on, I gotta go to my study and study this letter more carefully. That makes no sense at all, right? I would throw away the letter and take her in my arms because now everything that letter looked forward to and represented, I have now in the fullness of my wife there before me. Maybe I wouldn't throw away the letter. Maybe I'd tuck it in a drawer and every now and again, you know, peek back at it. But the point is, it's, it's sort of obsolete at this point because I have my wife there. Well, was the letter not a, a good thing and a grace and a gift? No, of course it was. But now the fuller, greater thing is is before us. That's something of what I think John is conveying here. The law of Moses was a great gift from God. It was great grace. And it's not that it was a bad thing, but it really is just obsolete now because Jesus has come. Everything that the law of Moses looked forward to is now here standing before us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So this means that when John says the Word became flesh, he is in effect saying a new age has dawned. New grace has come. Third and final point, and drawing to a close now. This is from verse 18. We learn there that Christ is the ultimate and final expression of the grace of God. Excuse me, we're still in verse 17 here. We're not waiting for some further revelation of the grace of God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate and final expression of God's grace. In him we have a fuller and greater display of grace than we ever had in the law of Moses. John is telling us that this is the end of the argument that our God is a gracious God. He's sending his son into the world and we're not waiting for, for some fuller expression, further expression of the grace of God. We have it finally and completely in Jesus. Well now thirdly and finally, we've seen that the word became flesh, the word was full of grace and truth. Thirdly, the word revealed the Father. The Word revealed the Father. Look with me at verse 18. And notice 
how similar verse 18 is to verse one. Now that we've come to the end of the prologue, come full circle. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God, remember the word was God, who is at the Father's side, the word was with God, he has made him known. Isn't it amazing what John has accomplished with this prologue? The words that seem very mysterious at the outset in verse one, now we understand with much greater clarity. Now we know precisely what he's talking about. He's talking about God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We learn that the word reveals the Father. I said it last week, I'll say it again this week, and I'll say it a thousand more times before this series is through. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know the Father, you need to look and study Jesus. He is the final and fullest revelation of God the Father. And in this text it says, he has made him known. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. John 14, verse 9, he says to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And here we have it in verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You have Jesus, you have God himself. You see Jesus, you have seen the Father. The verb used that's translated he has made him known, verse 18, it's an interesting word. The Greek word is exegeomai or exegeomai. It's used half a dozen times in the New Testament. It is the Greek word from which we get our word exegete or exegesis. What is exegesis? Hopefully it's what I'm doing right now. That is expounding and opening up the meaning of a text and seeking to make it plain. Which means, and I don't think this is an overstatement, Jesus is said to be the exegesis of God. Jesus the Son exegetes the Father, opens him up, explains him, makes his character and nature manifest. He is the exegesis of the Father. And precisely how God is exegeted, we're going to learn over the next 21 chapters. But drawing to a close now, I just want to say this. If we accept, okay, that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God the Father. He is the exegesis of God. He has come to explain to us what God is like. And if he was seen and revealed to be full of grace and truth, what can we conclude about God the Father? He is full of grace and truth. Here comes this great revelation of God in the fullness of time. The law of Moses is gone now and, and here the word is made flesh. And what are we going to learn about God? Is it that he comes in judgment? Is it that he comes in condemnation and, and wants to display his wrath toward humanity? No. He sends his son into the world. John and the others saw his glory. Glory is of the son from the father full of grace and truth. Which means the character of God is fundamentally gracious. Our God is a God of grace, revealed from beginning to end. It's not just like, well, the Old Testament God, he was full of wrath, but the New Testament God, he's very gracious. Not at all. The Old Testament reveals to us that he's a God who is what? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What would you expect when God became man? Would you expect anything other than that he would be full of grace and truth? And listen, my friend, it's the greatest news you could hear today. God comes in the person of his son in grace. The Lord Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so even now as Jesus Christ is presented to you, he's presented to you in grace, in favor, in compassion, in mercy. God's grace comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ. My friend, isn't that what you need? We're sinful people. We cannot be dealt with according to our sins or we're in trouble. We need grace. We need mercy. We need compassion. And that grace comes to us in the person of Jesus. Listen, you won't find grace anywhere else. This world is not, I wouldn't say, full of grace and truth. 
It's dog eat dog out there. It's quid pro quo. The world is full of malice. The world is full of anger and anxiety and hate and unrest. But the Jesus of the Bible is that one who was full of grace and truth. And he dispenses that grace to any who come to him in repentance and faith. If you come to Jesus today, he will deal with you on the basis of grace. Because he himself is full of grace and truth. Do you need grace? Come to Jesus and that one who is full of grace and truth and you will find it. Let's pray. Our Father, in light of the grandeur and majesty of this text, we're keenly aware that we've only scratched the surface. The depths of its meaning, the depths of its glory, the depths of its implications for our lives. Father, we thank you that as an expression of your grace and love for sinful man, you sent your son into the world as a final and ultimate expression of grace. We pray, Father, that each one of us would be acquainted with your grace, that none of us would endeavor to stand before you on our own merits, our own works, with our sins uh, upon us and covering us, but may we go to Jesus and find grace. May we go to him and find forgiveness. May each one of us, even now as we observe the Lord's table together, run forth to him and find in him goodness and kindness and mercy. You do not break the bruised reed. You do not quench the smoldering wick. You deal with people who come to you in faith and repentance on the basis of grace. And we thank you that your word has revealed it to be so because our lives depend on it. So please, Father, show us your grace even now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.